I think we have just a couple minutes for questions that you might want to put forth to, you know, Dwight or Ray, uh, Will, um, if there are any. Yes, Brian. By way of uh, immune therapies that patients can more easily access without having to go through this rigorous, you know, injection and apheresis, you know, extracting blood protocol, what, about, what do you think or recommend in terms of using things like thymic extract or, you know, stepping it up a notch and going with, like, injectables of Daxin? Yeah, we do that, like, the Daxin is also uh, at this level. Uh, the thing is, these things add up. You know, I think if you look at Dwight's slides, and I, you know, I have to, we deal with this. How many things can a patient take? Uh, the thymus extracts we recommend, uh, we, we do tell them to use it almost per routine. The Germans don't use it as much, although they have it as an injection. Uh, and there are other things, by the way, mistletoe, et cetera, all fall into this category, right? Uh, the, the problem is sedaxin is the same. You have to access it, at least uh, you have to access it previously from Panama. Now the Panama uh, connection is dead. You have to access it. Uh, the company that makes that thymus drug or thymus extract is actually a California company, uh, but you, it's not approved in the U.S. It's in trials. Um, the company is Cyclone. Then uh, now patients are trying to get it from Switzerland, but it's erratic. Uh, it has been seized uh, by the <coughs> FDA on an every other case. It's, helped, it's been held up, seized, sent back. And the Swiss are only just starting to explore. They, they, this whole thing transfer from Panama to Switzerland. I mean, there's a whole, this is the underground thing that we're talking about yesterday. So that's not easy to access. That's the problem. Some of the, and, and then for the patient, and then it's the cost. Uh, it's not inexpensive. And how many of these things can a patient do? Um, so we try to, to keep it fairly simple. There are patients who come and say, I want to do everything. And we, <coughs> we judge to see if they can really, you know, some people can't even take, you know, more than five supplements. Some come with 20 they're already taking. Um, so it, it's, uh, the, the logistics is not easy to carry this out, but there are no side effects. Really much, to, not really much side effects to deal with, but it's not an easy process and it's not inexpensive. Those are the hurdles, yeah. Any other comment, questions? Um, yeah, please. Is there a question that I think maybe sometime will be addressed, but just about the, the cost of all of this, and, yeah. and you know, who can afford <coughs> to, I think, I actually appreciate what you talked about accepting death and dying, and um, that, I guess just the interplay between, like, one, how far someone is willing to go to try to stay alive, you know, versus accepting that you're dying. And then, you know, who is able to do that if they want to do it? Because there's so many who are not able, even if they wanted to. Well, one comment, we did have a <coughs> special session in our days here <coughs> on efficacy for the underserved and for who don't have access to it. And uh, we grappled with that. It's, it is uh, sort of an above and beyond cost in the way things are. And in, in immune therapy, what's so frustrating is that pretty much everybody I consult with, at least on cancer cases, 
they really get it. They want, they know that you need to sort of fix the problem that allowed the cancer to grow in the first place. If they want to do immune therapy, and it's so difficult to do, as you point out, for reasons of access to therapies, for reason of the expense of therapies, and also the lack of consensus about what therapies might make a difference. And I can tell you, Raymond is rather modest in his <coughs> uh, presentation of what he offers to patients, but he, um, along with Brian Bausch over the hill in Petaluma, using some, some, of Brian, <laughs> some of Raymond's ideas, you can pretty simply, for instance, this gamma delta T cell therapy idea, <coughs> that if anybody is receiving, say, Zometa monthly for bone metastases, there's this nifty other little way to kind of goose it even further with a little interleukin-2 once a month, along with the... And Ray's been doing that for years. And uh, um, it really... The, the data is there, actually. And uh, it, it is a, a reasonable, not-so-expensive add-on immunotherapy. It could be... Uh, I would say at least 50% of my patients, the, the drug cost is covered by insurance. Um, uh, partly, mostly because the insurance doesn't know what it is. If they know what it is, then they, if they know what it is, they won't cover it uh, because it doesn't, you know. Uh, but sometimes they don't. So uh, sometimes it's reimbursed. It, so if it is reimbursed, uh, then uh, cost comes down. Uh, and uh, sometimes we have patients sharing uh, one prescription because we don't need to use one whole vial sometimes. So it is. It may be possible uh, to. Re I mean, it. The, there, there are, but it's true. I mean, if there's no insurance and there is no money, and then the whole cancer care is a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's what you do. I didn't mean to think about you, but I just, yeah. you know, kind of, I guess the thing is like, you know, how many supplements can one take? Exactly. And supplements are not totally inexpensive either. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. <laughs> one of the yeah. things... You end up drinking green tea. We spent a lot of time talking about sort of this idea of the terrain panel or looking for biomarkers. In a sense, to see really where, if you only had so many resources, to marshal them to attack or to go after one thing or the things that are going to make the biggest difference. And otherwise, you're just picking things out of a hat. I mean, if you only had $200 extra or $1,000 extra, whatever it might be per month, how best to spend it? Um, and the, the bigger issue is not only for this kind of thing, it's actually for cancer care as a whole. I don't know what hospice care is like relatively, uh, but this drug treatment of the conventional treatment of cancer, I don't know how, I don't really know how this system can sustain uh, the way it's going. The, the approved version of the dendritic vaccine uh, made by this company, Dendrion, it's called Provenge, is 100,000 which Medicare pays for. But you see, there are other issues. Then, they only pay for it if nothing else works because it's so expensive. So, so by that time, the patient will only be on it for a few months usually because nothing else worked. Um, and then because it's so, and they, then the company says, we have to charge this much because the company's been around for about 10 years trying to research and go through FDA, spend a lot of money, a few hundred million dollars. They said, we have to, because we can only, I mean, each patient will only get it for a few, it extends life, it's not a cure, uh, but it extends life slightly, by months. Think about it. Avastin extends life for average months, 
also, it's very expensive also. So all these issues come up. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the system. Michael. Can you see a pathway by which the cost could be reduced by making it available earlier in treatment course, therefore expanding the number of treatment by people that can take it? Um, ultimately, uh, the, the cost, a lot of it is regulatory. Uh, just to show you, it's not really the cost of production, although, although the cost of production is high. Uh, the Germans are able to deliver this for 5,000 uh, US dollars versus the 100,000 because they did not go through an FDA and all this kind of thing. Um, um, but the idea is if this kind of thing, like a vaccine concept, in patients who haven't recurred, if this prevents the recurrence, by which then it will prevent the use of even more expensive therapies down the road, it is then uh, uh, cost less to the system over time. But drug companies don't think that way necessarily. The government doesn't think that way necessarily. It's by use. So as you all know, preventative type of care yeah. is not, and no, nobody wants to spend tri money on trials looking at prevention because the trial will take years to complete and will cost the company too much and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. it's all focused on acute and, and last end of life and end of life care is expensive. Not, not to be so <laughs> cynical yeah. or to make us maybe feel more depressed about this than yeah. it warrants. <laughs> but Keith Block and I were at uh, some the American Society for Clinical Oncology meetings, and here was this huge poster presentation that was sponsored by Genentech. And what it was was the results of a survey <clears throat> asking oncologists if they had a drug that did the following which was to extend life, it was not much, you know, like you said, it was a handful of months, and there was a novel new therapy, and they were kind of referring to whether Avastin or what have you. <clears throat> How much would the oncologist feel was an appropriate amount that, to, to charge for it? And fascinatingly, the amount that, this was again sponsored by the people who would be doing this, um, was $96,000 a year. And this was right before they had this new rollout of a drug. And guess what next year that drug was priced at? $96,000 a year. In defense of Dendrion, a lot of the people who were involved with that uh, were friends of mine. From the, from the get-go, they wanted to have dendritic cell therapy be the first treatment for prostate cancer. But they had to go starting from the back and then work their way back down the ladder. Um, we're going to switch gears, and uh, Penny Block is going to be up. Long, many years back, <clears throat> one of the early Simonton conferences that Michael Lerner put on here, we had this amazing discussion about a given case. And uh, so the medical oncologist asked what the chemotherapy dose was, and the radiation oncologist asked what the you know, radiation therapy dose was. And then Stephanie Simonton raised her hand and said, what was the psychoontologic dose? Uh, and that was, I'll never forget that. I mean, what it said was it had parody. Penny Block. So yes, I I am switching gears, and I'm gonna use slides, I'm sorry. At this point in my life, I, these are my note cards. 
Forgive me, so I don't just ramble. Here we go. That's pretty beautiful, but anyway, okay. So before I begin, I want to say my genuine gratefulness. Um, not polite, but to Mark and Sandy and all of Commonweal and to the wonderful people that I've been learning so much from in the past few days. Um, because this is a unique opportunity for me to speak with people, um, professionals, and such a highly motivated community of like-minded individuals. Sometimes I speak to people who are very resistant to hearing this. So, um, as I say, because in the next minutes I'm going to climb up on a soapbox, so to speak, and I'm going to marshal the scientific argument for why psycho-oncology is critical to effective treatment and medical outcomes and belongs in every cancer clinic, actually medical clinic across the country. So for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet, I'm Penny Block. I am the co-founder and executive director of the Block Center for Integrative Cancer Treatment with Keith Block, and he's been talking earlier this weekend. And we officially opened our doors in June of 1980. And I think back of 32 years that we've witnessed an entire era of medical change in medical thinking, medical practice, and really importantly, in patient expectations. But if we're going to be honest, we all have to acknowledge we have a long, long way to go before what is genuinely integrative cancer treatment is available to every person diagnosed with one of these diseases. So, no, I don't have a financial disclosure, but I obviously have an agenda, and my goal is my goal is to challenge those sort of unconscious beliefs and assumptions that tend to sideline the psyche in medical care. There's a lot of doublespeak going on in the world today about integrative cancer treatment. And in fact, Keith and I attended a purportedly integrative oncology conference, and the keynote speaker got up and he insisted he would allow, he would allow that Integrative oncology was about these complementary practices that help people feel better and live better, which are important in and of themselves. But he adamantly insisted that getting better belonged exclusively to the realm of what he referred to as real medicine, conventional medicine. And truthfully, even psychosocial interventions Help people, yes, live better and feel better, but get better too, and that's what my argument is. So why do we continue to sideline psycho-oncology in medical practices today in clinics? Well, first of all, the psychosoma um, interaction, it's kind of an old discourse. You know, we've heard it, and actually a lot of people experience it. But number two is psychosocial factors. They're kind of a poor fit in the biomedical model. It's easier to understand taking it, swallowing a tablet or a capsule or getting an infusion. Um, that is an easier fit. And by the way, in our full integrative program, we do support supplemental use and nutraceuticals. But number three is the psychological disease link is just often deemed soft science. And I've got an answer to that too. So, 
this is just a diagram that emphasizes that truly or genuinely integrative treatment um, is not just a set of separate complementary practices, but actually a dynamic system of interconnected components. But just for the sake of today's discussion, I'm emphasizing and separating out psychosocial strategies. This actually is our center. I, we don't just do this in the abstract, and we've been fortunate to now occupy a beautiful facility that's, by the way, a great place for staff to work, too. You see infusion, uh, chemo-infusion rooms. Um, our physical therapist works there. Actually, the woman um, on the top right is receiving her chemo while she's on the exercise cycle. And four weeks, about a little over four weeks before this picture was taken, she came into the center in a wheelchair. And in working with her collaboratively, she was able to not only get up and walk down the stairs to our lounge on her own, but um, exercise. Um, we don't do a typical support group, but we do consistently or routinely every week have something called strategies for success, which really is a brainstorming opportunity for patients in terms of not only how do you handle you know, taxing treatments and the intrusion of cancer in their lives, but how do you live with vitality in the midst of all of it? So actually I have a longer list. This is a rhetorical question that I've sometimes posed when I'm teaching medical students. Um, and the question really, I'm just going to go straight to the, the answer in the bottom line. It's chronic unrelieved distress linked to which of the following. And I'm emphasizing those items on the cancer microenvironment. I hope you can all see this. Because maybe you could almost put a mental check mark. Whoops. Back, back, back. What did I do? No. Um, next to those items that you would consider correct. Well, obviously, it's a rhetorical question, so every single one of these items in the microenvironment are linked to chronic unrelieved distress. Those are the operative words. So glucose disruption, insulin resistance, cortisol dysregulation, increased pro-inflammatory cytokines, elevated levels of VEGF, which Dwight has been good about explaining, um, reduction in apoptosis, again discussed tumor growth, and enhanced metastases to distant tissues, all linked to chronic, unmitigated stress or distress. But the good news is that a systematic psychosocial program can actually counter these consequences of the stress hormone cascade um, and actually help boost a patient's survival odds. So stress is in everybody's life. Um, the problem is that cancer seems to uh, exacerbate those stress issues and complicate them. And some stress is good. It gets us out of bed in the morning. Um, it actually, if it's not too intense, it can enhance performance. But what I'm talking about is chronic, unrelieved distress. And it may not be as this picture, you know, metaphorically shows that he's not struggling that much or that sadly he's sitting on a curb or she, it would, in another case, um, folded over, but silently maybe struggling with things like scanxiety, which is an apt term that was coined in a Time Magazine article. Um, it's going in for a scan, coming out with this great re 
report or result, and you're going, you know, I got an A+, plus, I no visible signs of disease, or at least the disease is stable, but then recognizing within weeks, I got to go back in for another one of those scans and wait for the report. Um, but then there's job security questions, uh, surgery issues, sexuality problems, things that cause distress. So what are some of the consequences in the cancer microenvironment? Well, let me just give you three examples. Um, the flood of adrenaline in the body has been found to increase a cancer-linked gene expression that actually protects colon cancer cells from different chemo protocols. And in another study, it was found to produce resistance to doxorubicin and paclitaxel in breast cancer. Second consequence, or exhibit B, um, again, the catecholamines allow the malignant cells to escape the primary tumor and then seem to protect those breakaway cells from apoptosis, but a specific kind, anoikis. Example three, um, again, chronic stress was shown to induce approximately a 30-fold increase in metastases to clinically relevant distant tissues, including lymph nodes and lung. But again, the good news, it was found that eliciting the relaxation response on an average of only 17 and a half minutes a day, and this was a study done at Harvard by Dusek and his team, and then the director of Genomic um, Center at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. So on an average, 17 and a half minutes a day, and within eight weeks, people who had never practiced any of these techniques that shift the body from the sympathetic nervous response to the parasympathetic. It was able to change gene expression that counteract the cellular damage from chronic psychological stress, even in short-term practitioners I've mentioned. And I like the quote of the director of the Genomic Center, Lieberman, who said that this is the first comprehensive study linking what has been looked at as soft science with the hard science of genomics. So how prevalent is psychological stress? <laughs> well, <laughs> the very, what's that? How can you be diagnosed with cancer and not have stress? Thank you. Chronic stress. Thank you. Yeah. Point, in, point taken, exactly. So, but I want to make a couple of statements. The rate of depression may be four times that of the general population. Um, but even though distress is common, and I want to emphasize this clearly, I'm not talking about psychological illness, despite some of the authorities in the field. I'm talking about what is the understandable reaction to this abnormal circumstance, because cancer is not only a disruption in biology, but a true disruption in every individual's biography. So do we know, as medical teams or in clinics, when patients are suffering? Well, probably not. Um, in fact, here's a scenario that tells what happens. Say someone on the medical team walks in to sit down with a cancer patient and says, how are you doing, John Smith? And John says, fine, doc. And you know what? In many ways, John's doing fine. He shows up for work every day. He's still engaged with his family. And there he is, routinely showing up for treatment. But silently, he is suffering. So as a medical team, we're missing it. 
I was surprised to find that 40% of nurses did not detect this quality of life impairment. And I guess I've always assumed that they not only have the time, but they're on the inside track with what's going on with patients. So I'm going to keep talking about and beating a drum about we have to screen and intervene in every single medical clinic, much less cancer clinic. So why doesn't the medical team know? Well, there's kind of this silent collusion between doctor and patient often. First of all, there's the assumption these problems are inevitable with cancer. Second of all, there's the pressure of limited time, which we all know about. And then there's little training to address these kinds of issues. The belief that the emotional difficulties do not belong in the doctor's purview, but the most insidious of all is this credo of the positive attitude. And the dictate to stay positive still pervades the public psyche and is perpetuated by the media. This young woman told me that her husband said to her when he saw her being teary, just buck up and, and just be positive. And she said she thought it was more for his comfort than hers to say that. But it's impossible to be positive all the time, 24-7, even without cancer. I mean, I would say to you, did you read the front page of the newspaper today? Did you have to pay bills? Um, what about work pressures? But with cancer, it's even more difficult. So it's not only not feasible, but this idea that if you have dark thoughts and feelings, it might have an adverse impact on the disease was found to be incorrect. Wisner team found that restriction of emotions plus chronic anxiety equals a dangerous equation leading to increased mortality. So learning how not to, how be able to manage rather the flux of emotions that is just absolutely normal with cancer and developing techniques so you don't get stuck in dark places, that's associated with better outcome. And I like to distinguish between positive attitude and determination. We hope all of us that were reinforcing determination in patients. And that's, you can feel knocked down, leveled sometimes, but you get back up again, sort of metaphorically brush off your behind and go forward. So why screen and intervene? Well, first of all, we don't want people suffering silently. The first mandate of medicine is to eliminate human suffering. But second of all, there really is a treatment-relevant reason. Um, using some of the screening tools that we use, these standardized um, questionnaires uh, or measurements, it was found on this hospital anxiety and depression scale, which has two subscales. When the scores on the two scales were elevated, it emerged as the sole independent predictor of response to chemotherapy when controlling for disease variables. Again, screening and intervening, also using these same simple pen and paper measurements that are standardized and such effective screening tools. It was found with 578 breast cancer patients that elevated scores on that same hospital anxiety and depression subscale and then something known as the helplessness and hopelessness subscale on the mental adjustment to cancer. Um, it was found to be linked with increased relapse or death at five years. And then when the researchers went back and looked at their data again, they discovered that, in fact, the effect held. But guess what? 
The good news is that helplessness, hopelessness is a mindset, and it translates to nothing I can do and nothing anybody else can do can make a difference. But if equipped with really good tools, an integrative program that is tailored to each person's individual needs, this can change, and that sense of helplessness, hopelessness dissipates. So, all right, unrelieved psychological distress can lead to dysregulation of key um, molecular and biochemical factors. But how about if we intervene, and even with just some very simple fundamental strategies, so simple that they sound simplistic. So what about progressive muscle relaxation that has been studied so much and its benefits in terms of side effects, the kind of side effects that propel people out of chemotherapy prematurely often. Um, so it was found that this simple technique practiced by itself and then with focused imagery was more effective than anti-emetic um, medicines alone in controlling the frequency, duration, and intensity of nausea and vomiting. And again, this simple, simplistic technique, randomized controlled trials, you know, the gold standard of the modern scientific method, was found to result when practiced every day concurrent with chemotherapy once in a four-week study to result in a 30% increase of NK cell numbers and um, activity. And then with an ovarian um, cancer group who practiced this every day concurrent with chemo, um, it resulted in a significantly increased um, level of lymphocytes, necessary lymphocytes, unlike the controls, and even during myelosuppressive chemo. So simple techniques can make a difference, as long as it's systematic. I really like this because it's evidence that even psychosocial well-being is interconnected with molecules, molecular factors that are relevant to cancer and or health. So women with improved social well-being as, again, using another screening tool that we do with our patients, the fact, it's a quality of life um, and well-being assessment. Um, so these women with improved cell, um, social well-being and reduced chronic distress, I keep beating that drum, using daily relaxation routines actually found that it was linked to dramatically lower levels of VEGF. Well, what I'm really urging is there is a systematic psychological program in every oncology clinic. And Barbara Anderson and her team found in a randomized controlled trial with 227 stage two and three breast cancer patients that it made a real difference. And in their 11-year longitudinal study, those women who were in the intervention group um, had a 45% reduced risk of breast cancer recurrence, a 56% reduced risk of death from breast cancer, and a 49% reduced risk of death from all causes. And when the researchers went back after the 11 years and looked at their data, even those women who had recurred still had close to 60% reduced risk of dying from breast cancer compared to the controls. So, and by the way, this was not a complicated intervention, but systematic. So yes, we have our own program. I won't go through the details. Um, and... This is just an outline, but I do want to point out how we screen and we can intervene as a collaborative team. And by the way, we do connect 
with so many good people. I mean, I could name oh, a whole slew here who are outside of our clinics so that we have um, a true networking. But getting back to this, this is an example of how we can see immediately as teams in our center um, when someone's getting into a difficult area. So these are graphs, line graphs, and every dot on it represents another visit to the clinic. And this is a man who peaked in terms of, if you look at the top um, middle graph, he peaked in the depression um, subscale on the hands, which I mentioned was predictive of response to chemo and predictive of poorer survival, actually. And so we immediately, in a timely way through our electronic medical record system, were able to intervene with him and provide him some tools so you can see he got into a comfort area at his next visit. And here's how we individualize. Um, these numbers, which you probably can't see very well, um, are representative of a woman's response to all these screening tools. And when she was still in active treatment, she traveled to us from Florida. We're outside of Chicago. Every three weeks per her protocol, a single parent, a son with severe learning disabilities, and self-employed. Any one of those things would lay us low, but she actually had very low numbers on her depression and anxiety subscale. But there was an area of concern. On the spiritual quality of life, there's one item that says, I have trouble feeling peace of mind. And she checked four which is very much. So I was able to walk in and sit down with her and say, you know, you have remarkable inner resources and strengths in managing all these ch challenges in your life. But I'm concerned because you're having trouble finding peace of mind. It's really hard to live without peace of mind. So let's talk about what peace of mind would look like and feel like to you and some approaches that will help you enhance peace of mind. And these are our patients who exhibit what we all hope for, for ourselves, but for all our patients. And that is what we consider genuine health, which goes beyond just the absence of severe symptoms or the absence of a significant diagnosis. Those are prerequisite. But they're engaging in their lives with the greatest vitality possible and at every dimension of their being. Thank you. Uh, we, we were sort of scheduled to take a break around now, but also just if there's some immediate sort of thoughts, responses to, I think in a sense what you're identifying is an epidemic of a significant undertreated, unrecognized, undiagnosed condition. Yeah. I have a, I mean, it's not a really direct question, it's just to sort of... Um, it hasn't been discussed, I, I'm sure you've all talked about it or thought about. Um, when you are first, the person making the diagnosis of cancer, when you get that phone call, it's generally your surgeon, because that's who's done the biopsy and is, is calling. And um, why does the surgeon or whoever's making this phone call not have a counselor or a therapist who then contacts you? like? five minutes later. Like, I'm going to call John and tell him he has cancer. Can you call him in five minutes and talk to him? Or when I have him come into my office, can, why 
Do they not have a counselor just to talk to you at the moment of diagnosis? Oh, I think that's a great suggestion. And in fact, I did mention it to one surgeon because I, I couldn't contain myself after a patient told me what had happened. Yeah. Usually so, they say, I'm so sorry. Oh. It's like it rained that day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I really actually want to do something more, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because it's, I've heard of people driving into their parking lot at work and getting a phone call. Yeah. Um, just terrible. I mean, as, as far as this conference being a clinical advocacy conference, and, and I feel like that's one spot that is such a key moment so will you talk to me afterwards so that I can coordinate with you? I would like to... I want to tell you that also what the, the teaching has been, and maybe things changed, but the teaching was you would never give a patient the diagnosis of cancer over the phone. But I'm just saying, that, I mean, that, that, has, that was sort of a rule even. I mean, you know, only, only bad doctors did that. And I would say that's still the case, but... Uh, it's very common. I'm sorry, man. I hear this often. On the other hand, when they when you're waiting and when you call and you're told to come in, yeah, and you know for sure that they are going to tell you whether they stand in the doorway and say something outrageous like they're precious and we have to say that's that's verbatim for the doctor I had, or they're going to come in and sit down and say, I'm very sorry to say you have cancer. So in some ways, if somebody was actually skilled in communication over the phone, hearing it over the phone would be just fine. Just like you were talking about the telephone being your friend. I mean, it's more about the quality of communication, you know, because yeah, because if you're going to drive in, you know, you know, you know what you're going to get. You're going to sit in the waiting room, and then the doctor's going to tell you that you have cancer, and you already know that because you're coming in. So, so one of our patients started to teach her oncologist, not I wasn't the surgeon, but what he should say and how he should say it to her. She didn't want him to pretend or to say something misleading, but there is a way of communicating what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, that right. is more personal and aware. Yeah. And I think doctors, but even our friends don't know how to do this, so we have to really teach them. You know, what is the communication that we need at different times, too, and how to do it. Oh, I'm sorry, I keep moving around in my voice. Yeah, Jessica. I'm deeply impressed that you guys actually read that questionnaire. Normally when I fill out things to go to the doctor, they, you know, I know they don't read it, but you guys did. And yeah. it was a very complex and crafty document. It came at you from all angles. You come oh, yeah. out with it, you know? <laughs> but um, the other thing I just wanted to say that I think that I like you know, obviously I like your approach, but um, that during treatment, at least for me, it's often sort of easier to keep your head above water because you're just playing so damn busy. But the years afterwards are really a time to keep an eye ah, on a patient. Two yeah. years later, Absolutely. and we're talking about PTSD 30 years later, <laughs> it, it, you know, you're, you're dealing with a world that is constantly saying pessimistic things about your prospects and um, life is there and you don't kind of have the excuse of you know, pushing it all away. And I find that some of the, you know, at least for me, some of the things, the problems I struggled with came on years later and I think I could trace them back to the diagnosis. So I had a whole group of things to discuss, but Mark was adamant 
20 minutes, or he was going to be like that old stagehand with a cane that was going <laughs> to yank me off. But it is such a juncture of stress. People are so surprised because everybody's going, yay, you finished chemo, congratulations. And people don't realize that they're leaving where they are being monitored regularly and supported. They go back home or wherever, and their work colleagues, their friends expect them, the cancer's all gone. It's out of their life, which is so wrong. It's not true. So that's another discussion to have because it really requires, and, and we do follow up with that. It's an, a critical area of support. Anyway, yeah. Just, just one more. I didn't chase you quite yeah, yet. One more, too, is that when you have a loved one, excuse me, oh, um, who has cancer and just goes under doesn't want to talk, is depressed, you know they're depressed, they do say that, so that's one good thing. But they don't want to see you, I mean, I, you know, you just keep calling, whatever. I mean, if there's any, I mean, I know that they have to go through their own process, but, like, I invited him here and he didn't want to come. You know, I mean, there's nothing to do about that. But just, you know, support, somehow support for the families who want to help advocate when the patient is not doing so. I mean, it's really... It's an awful feeling of helpless when somebody, helplessness when somebody you love um, is dealing with this and doesn't want to deal with it. But obviously, you got to respect what this individual's um, values and needs are. And, you know, maybe you can even do things that just are practical support rather than getting into some of the deeper or other levels, you know and um, having this person indicate what might be helpful. And then everybody can kind of choose what they want to do. And that begins making somebody feel supported, truly. I, I don't know any more deeper, so I can't respond. Yeah. Well, I would just add to that is that, um, so we screen very aggressively for depression in our program, and so prevalent I have had, or we've dealt with many patients who are, you might say, inaccessible would be the word I would use, in the sense they don't want the integrated experience, they don't want support. A medication can, has surprised me again and again of opening up their mood just enough to where you might say it's the crack in the door. It's really surprised me. Um, because sometimes people will take a pill and they'll do nothing else. Or, or and probably different biologicals and natural agents. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank, thank you. And so we're going to take a few minutes so we can break and restroom and we have some snacks or drinks or something. And then we're going to reconvene with Michael McCulloch. Oh, oh, if I could sing. <laughs> Most of you in the Commonwealth community, I'm sure, are aware of the Pine Street Clinic in San Anselmo. And uh, the two Michaels, Michael Brofman, Michael McCulloch. And we've had Michael McCulloch here for our entire conference. And he's regularly been blowing our mind with <clears throat> one sort of profound and obvious thing after another that we were somehow not seeing. So I leave him to do the same. Thank you, Mark. Okay, hello, everybody. <clears throat> so this uh, presentation is um, it's a description of a research project that we conducted 
uh, over the past 15 years. And it is um, inspired in me by the case of my grandmother who died of lung cancer and the first symptom was a headache. And it is for people that are themselves looking for uh, solutions for health. And secondarily, it's for people that are here that are involved in clinical work and research um, as a simple and elegant way to analyze data from clinical practices and treatment centers that provide a good alternative to randomized trials, which are considered by many to be the gold standard, but they have some shortcomings. And um, it's really, uh, the, the, the Chinese medicine you could think of as really a kind of an amalgam going over many, many centuries that uh, was the result of, of long process of, of historical mixing and the um, medicines being brought to China from different parts of the world and then gradually incorporated into the practice. Um, Chinese medicine as it's currently practiced today uh, has in it uh, strong uh, influences from, from some of the philosophical uh, traditions of China um, about how a person views themselves in their health, um, how a person um, is able to uh, follow relaxation strategies and um, their uh, connection to nature. And then the how a role that a person plays within a particular social group and their support system and how that influences their health. Um, <clears throat> this is sort of a summary of the project that we conducted. It was a 10-year follow-up study in which we followed for a 10-year time frame um, people with either lung cancer or colon cancer. Today's presentation will be about the, the lung cancer uh, results. And this follows the strict definition of uh, what's called a consecutive case series, where all the people with a particular diagnosis seen within a defined time frame are included in the analysis. So the people that had the best outcome and the people that had the least favorable outcome are all counted. And, and this is part of the, the scientific sort of um, code uh, of, of ethics around a, a consecutive case series is that all of the people have to be included. And we made two different comparisons um, in our treatment uh, design. One is we, we compared the, the longevity of people who elected to use Chinese herbal medicine and vitamins just during the course of their chemotherapy program uh, or radiation uh, to those people who continued long term. So that was one comparison. Um, the other is we compared our, the people treated at our center to those controls obtained from the cancer registries. Um, in the United States, cancer is considered what's called a reportable disease, meaning when a person is diagnosed, regardless of where they're diagnosed, that's reported to a group that tracks all this information, and that's the cancer registry. And we work with two registries, one at uh, Kaiser Permanente and the other uh, at the California Cancer Registry. Um, the approach to research here has a very long history. Um, back in the day, when Daniel and his group were in the court of King uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king insisted that um, Daniel and his group eat the, his rich food, because he wanted everyone to look thick and healthy in the court. Uh, 
But Daniel, who was probably an old hippie, he decided, well, no, I'd rather eat vegetables and fruits and grains, and now I've, okay. And uh, so, but the king insisted, and so Daniel said, well, I'll tell you what, let's do a study. And you guys, the courtiers, can eat whatever you want and have my people eat just a basic, uh, it was probably mostly vegan diet. And we'll see who looks better. And guess which group ended up healthier. Then if you fast forward a um, couple thousand years to the mathematical analysis methods used in this study, and we're going to briefly talk about those too. Uh, this is just a summary of the kind of case information that we would gather that defines um, a person's inclusion in our study so that the diagnosis is confirmed by uh, biopsy and, and pathology reports. And the treatment is organized. This is kind of a practical uh, view of what we did. Um, as most chemotherapy treatments are divided into, they occur every three weeks. And we divided that time frame up into three phases. The first phase being where we seek to uh, utilize strategies that help the chemotherapy do its job chemically, but also to improve the delivery of that chemotherapy drug throughout the body. So if you noticed in uh, Penny's slides earlier about the Block Treatment, uh, Block Medical Center, they had a one wonderful slide of a woman on an exercise bicycle while she was getting her chemotherapy infusion. And uh, there's been quite a bit of research uh, conducted, most of it uh, in Europe, about how when you um, are exercising at or near the time of chemotherapy, you have uh, substantially lower toxicity and a better treatment outcome. The second phase of treatment, um, beginning at about four days after treatment occurs, you want to help the, the lymphatic system, the liver, and the kidneys basically cleanse the system of the breakdown products of the drug that are still in the system, no longer therapeutically active, but still have toxicity. And then the third phase <clears throat> is you're working to help rebuild a person's fitness level and strength and immune competence so that they can be show up on time for the next chemotherapy cycle, which um, the long-term effects of chemotherapy really depend on it happening um, as close as possible to the scheduled uh, timing of, of when it's supposed to happen. These are some of the details of the treatment. A lot of these are items that um, Ray uh, and Penny and um, Dwight spoke about in great detail. Um, we're happy to provide copies of the paper for anyone that would like the details. It would take a while to go through this, but it's um, fundamentally at the core is a combination of immune-enhancing agents, those that help uh, with reducing toxicity, uh, symptom control, um, inflammation reduction, and they are scheduled um, Look at the, um, the treatment schedule on the right-hand side. There we go. See that little red dot? Reminds me of those cartoons where you used to be on TV when I was young. You know, a little bouncing ball would go along with <laughs> words. And you notice how there's very few things in the first phase, and then it gradually builds oh, from part one to part two to part three. 
these are the people that were treated and the numbers in the different groups. Um, there was the short-term group overall divided into stage two, three A, three B, and stage four. And if you're wondering, well, where are the stage one people? This gives you a graphical image of how difficult it is and how rare it is that lung cancer is actually diagnosed at stage one. So it wasn't that we didn't include them, it's that they didn't show up. And then the people that elected to continue their protocol long-term after chemotherapy and radiation was completed, 235 altogether. And this is a little bit more of the details of who those people were in terms of their treatment history, their age, uh, gender, uh, specific type of uh, uh, cell, uh, cell type of lung cancer diagnosed, um, and um, the demogra demographics basically reflect the county that we, we live in. Um, and so this was our group here again, and these are the two groups, that the controls from the uh, California Cancer Registry and from Kaiser. And this is, I'm gonna put the punchline to this presentation right in the middle. So this is it right here. And that is, in conventional treatment, most of the time, the median survival, which is defined as the, if you take 100 people, the point in time following initiation of treatment, right here, this is time equals zero, so that's the beginning of the study. And you f this on the x-axis here, that's time. On the y-axis is the percent that are still alive. And right at the top here, notice the one there, that represents 100%. So everyone has to be alive to start in the study, and then they're followed over time uh, to see how they do, and the faster the line drops, the, the, the less favorable the survival, and then the slower it comes down, the better the survival. And we coined kind of a, an acronym for the treatment, PAM, which it's an acronym for Pan-Asian Medicine Plus Vitamins, so PAM plus V. And normally, median survival, where 50% of the group here see the 0.5, so you're learning a little statistics today. This is how to read a Kaplan-Meier survival curve. That's what this thing is called. And the point at which 50% are still alive, the long dash line here, that's the uh, registry controls from the California Cancer Registry there. And that is about uh, six to eight months, typically. But the group that uh, continued their um, herbal and vitamin treatment beyond the conclusion of the uh, chemotherapy, <clears throat> their median survival was 33 months. So that's a little bit more than a five-fold increase in the survival. Um, so that's sort of the overview, the punchline. And we then decided, well, what about, let's take a few more detailed looks at this. What about people that had um, that what about the, the comparison between people that use followed herbs and vitamins long-term versus those that use it only during the course of the radiation? So this is answering the question of how long should I take herbs? Because it's a question that we often encounter. For many, many years, we didn't know the answer to that until we analyzed the data from this study. And this was uh, roughly a threefold difference, a median survival increase from 10 months to 33 months 
10 months being the group that used herbs and vitamins only during the duration of their chemotherapy and radiation, and 33 months being median survival of the group that elected to continue long-term. And um, so in stage four lung cancer really, really made a huge difference. Um, at the same time we published this study, we had another um, paper that was on colon cancer. And in that paper, we found that in stage one colon cancer people who were, um, there wasn't really that much, uh, there wasn't a difference between short-term and long-term use. And that was probably because the disease was cured at the beginning by the initial combination of treatment. But here in more advanced disease, it made a huge difference. Um, <clears throat> we were also interested in what about specifically people who are just using chemotherapy? And we decided to break that out and, and compare it. And this line here is what? Me yeah, the median survival, 50%. And so the difference there is uh, somewhere in the uh, uh, 10 to 12 month time period. And the, the, data, the, the dotted line there is people that received treatment with chemotherapy alone. Um, the long dash line is no chemotherapy, no herbal medicine, and then the combination is way out here. So when I look at a graph like this, a Kaplan survival curve, right in here, this big space in the middle, all that time, this is basically all this extra time here that people in this group were alive, I see garage sales and bar mitzvahs and graduations and all the different activities that we all uh, enjoy that are important to us. Um, we broke it out also by uh, radiation. So here we've got actually four different groups you could compare. The solid line would be the full combination, herbs and vitamins plus radiation. Just a little bit beneath that is herbs and vitamins alone. Then down below, radiation alone and no treatment. So one sort of uh, dramatic um, outcome of this way of looking at the data is in stage 3A lung cancer, radiation treatment by itself didn't really make that much of a difference. But when you combined everything together, a huge difference. And then one more, a similar effect with the surgery. So this is what's also called a, in medicine, a dose-response effect, that the higher the dose goes from no treatment to one treatment alone, the other alone, or the full combination, if you get better and better results, that's called a dose-response or levels of effect. And then we were also interested in the question of, because sometimes at, at individual treatment centers, you wonder, is it where people got treated or, you know, the decorations are nice or, you know, the beautiful copper door like this or nice art on the walls or the way that people interact with you. Those things are all important, but it's still because not everyone can be seen at one individual treatment center. Um, and you're also interested in the question of how well did the medicine itself work outside of the treatment center where it was delivered. So we had uh, quite a few people here who came to our center for an original evaluation, an initial evaluation and a treatment plan, and they were then followed at, at other treatment centers. And you can notice here how 
when the lines are that close together and one crosses the other, that means there's no statistically significant difference between the two groups. In other words, the treatment effect itself held up regardless of where it was being provided. This is enormously important for research activities too because you want to um, be, in order to uh, understand how applicable or generalizable the results are to other centers, other patients, other parts of the country or other parts of the planet, you want to be able to get a sense of how well they, um, excuse me, how well it held up. Then um, some people like to look at survival in terms of percentages. So these were the percentages in uh, stage four, just to pull that out compared to the slides we looked at. Stage one, stage two, and stage, uh, sorry, <coughs> it's all stage four, but at one year, two year, and five year survival rates. And you might think, well, 14, that sounds kind of low, but compare that to one or 2% in the general population treated at regional medical centers, then it's, the ratio is actually huge. Um, then there's a short section here for the advocates and the researchers here today. This is the paper, by the way, the cover page um, published in the journal Integrative Cancer Therapies. So here's one thing. Um, in research, it's important to look at what about the, what's called the adjusted analysis, where you take into account all the different features of an individual's uh, case, their age, their gender, uh, stage, and so on. And you have here a, a, an effect measure called the hazard ratio. So this is short-term versus long-term. And the lower that proportion there, 0 0.29, that means about uh, one-third, um, or rather a two-thirds reduction in the risk of death or um, two-thirds uh, improvement in longevity related to treatment. Uh, similarly with uh, our treatment compared to controls from the cancer registries. So this is just to show the researchers here that we did go through a rigorous um, adjusted analysis where we took all the different factors into account. Um, this is another brief uh, comparison of this study to other work we did previously in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. This journal is read by just about all practicing oncologists here in the country. And this was just Chinese herbs um, with chemotherapy compared to chemotherapy alone. And it was an analysis of uh, 30 studies published in China where they had that specific design in a randomized trial design um, where people received either Chinese herbal medicine or uh, plus chemotherapy or chemotherapy alone. Hard to do blinding in that study because Chinese herbs have a unique taste to them when you use them as a tea. Um, but we, had a, we found a 33% improvement in uh, survival at one year post-treatment and 34% improvement in what's called tumor response, meaning how much does the tumor shrink in size specifically after the treatment. Um, and there are many other possible explanations uh, for these differences that could in part explain the differences between the groups. There's what's called selection bias. There's a, an innate difference between, usually between people who choose one treatment uh, versus those who don't. Um, socioeconomic status, um, self-efficacy, this is a concept that's important to advocates and that is it's a function of a person's ability to make decisions for themselves and how they work through those, that decision-making process. 
the process of uh, the phenomenon of informative censoring, meaning did patients with worse prognosis just not continue, and that was an explanation for the difference? Um, and, and other factors, what we call residual confounding, even after a, a good analysis. And these types of shortcomings apply to just about every scientific research study that you read that's out there and um, are important to consider when you, when you look at the results. This is a little step back for all of us. This is a slide that I put together. It took a little bit of research to make this. This is both a statement of how important complementary and alternative medicines are to all of us as a whole. It's also a statement of how little new innovation is actually coming from the pharmaceutical industry. And if you take the, the black line here, this reflects uh, annual R&D, meaning research and development costs, or money spent by um, in the industry from 1995 to 2010. So that's 15 years of taxpayer dollars right there and private investment in, in the industry. That's in billions of dollars. So 45 there, peaked at around uh, 2007, 2008. But you would think, gee, there ought to be a lot of new drugs coming out of that too. So on the left-hand scale here, this is the number of annual new drug approvals. And that's the dashed line here, the long dash. That's going down. As, as the money spent, being spent is going up, the number of new drugs coming out of all that spending is going, spending is going way down. So compare that to the amount of money spent by consumers out of pocket here in the country as a whole from roughly 1989 through 2008. So it just gives you a sense of, of uh, what's happening out there. Um, and it's important to put this into context because the, remember we talked earlier about the, the gold standard of randomized trials. Well, there aren't actually that many of them happening in uh, conventional and alternative medicine. This is a, another slide that I did a little research to put together and that is the blue line represents all randomized federally funded randomized um, trials over that same 15 year time period. And then the red line is randomized trials specific to cancer. And then the, these two dots here, each of those dots is one study. Those are the federally funded cancer survival studies using complementary and alternative medicine. So if you compare this to number one, the need out there, number two, this phenomenon in the marketplace, then what that means is that if the randomized trials aren't gonna happen, let's say for example, we had a, um, a huge increase in spending and federal dollars for research, then about 10 or 15 years from now, we might have the results of that. Instead, why not use existing available uh, analysis methods that can be applied to existing data from existing uh, clinical centers to do the kind of research that we did. So it's not just the methods aren't just um, relevant to our group, but in fact, relevant to, to just about any uh, data set. And um, these are just a few of the differences um, between randomized trials and when they get the drug approval process. Sometimes there's a between a two and a five-fold increase in the effect 
from the data that the pharmaceutical company gave to the FDA and what happens in the community at large. So, and that's the number that really means something to all of us because it's how the drug performs in a general population that is really a measure of its true capability as a drug, not the inflated results that were presented for the drug's licensing. Um, and so this is a uh, slide just to describe that the, rhino, the randomized trials that are often advocated at medical conferences as being the only way to define whether a treatment works or not may not actually be working that well. Um, and this makes a statement of that since less than 3% of all people who are diagnosed with cancer will join a trial of any type, then if you were offered the possibility of joining a trial where you had a 50% uh, odds, a uh, 50% likelihood of getting the placebo versus the herb, and there's an acupuncturist down the street, you can guess which one you're going to pick. Therefore, that makes the case for what are, what are called observational studies, like the one we did, with appropriate statistical techniques that will provide a real uh, useful answer because you're testing um, right here in the lower part here. With an observational study, you're testing how the medicine is actually used in the community at very low cost. And a lot of data already exists out there. Uh, there is some selection bias about who chooses alternative medicine, but there's also a huge selection bias in pharmaceutical-funded randomized trials on who is actually allowed into the trial, what are called eligibility criteria. Um, the statistical methods, the statistical methods we used, uh, the propensity score is the main one. And it has a way, if you have enough, if you have a rich enough set of information about the people being analyzed, whose data is being analyzed, you can eliminate up to 90% of the bias that is usually taken care of in a randomized trial. So it's pretty close. If your data are good enough, it's pretty close to a randomized trial in the ability to draw conclusions from those data. Um, more about the methods. Um, this isn't a statistical conference. Um, and uh, I wanted to conclude with my thanks to Mark and Sandy and uh, Michael Lerner at Commonweal uh, for all of us, you know, making it possible for all of us to meet here this weekend. And these are my uh, collaborators in this project representing our group at Pine Street Foundation, uh, UC Berkeley, where I studied in the public health department, uh, Kaiser uh, Permanente, San Francisco Oncology, San Francisco General Hospital, Chinese Academy of Sciences. So it was a, it was a wide ranging uh, collaboration. And thank you all very much. It's also probably one of the only research papers that really looked at this integrative model for cancer care. Uh, I mean, and that's, it's profound in that alone, even though this was more tilted towards uh, Chinese medicine, but in truth, it was an integrative model, and uh, it's impressive. Some some questions, comments? Yes, Sandy. What is the toxicity um, when you combine the herbs and vitamins and the chemo radiation, compared to chemo radiation? Okay, uh, so the question was, what was the toxicity uh, related to chemotherapy and radiation 
when we combine, when we uh, compared people uh, also getting herbs and vitamins compared to the conventional alone, that was something that in, in the actual study itself, we didn't actually measure those uh, real time because this was a, what's called a retrospective study where you, you open up the file drawers and look back on what happened um, over time. And um, the, but on a day-to-day -day basis, when we're seeing individual patients, what we're seeing is that the, the differences are substantial and they reflect some of the stories that Penny mentioned about the, the degree of uh, vitality that people feel in comparison to not having that supportive treatment. So the, the difference is, uh, is huge. We haven't yet quantified that yet here within our group, but uh, that'll be kind of a next step thing to work on. Yes. Yes. Hi. Even though this really wasn't the subject of your um, talk, I, I, right. is it okay to ask you about one specific um, uh, supplement that you had up on your chart? Uh, yeah, I might have an answer. I'll try. Yeah. It, it, um, you, you had listed germanium, germanium sesquoxide. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay? Yes. And, and it's just something I've been hearing about lately. Mm -hmm. So I just wondered if I know very briefly. If yes. I, I understand it's being used uh -huh. for bone. Okay, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, um, this, the actual compound, it's, it's a, uh, an antioxidant. And um, one of the, um, we were using it for a while back when it was being provided in a way that was uh, stable. Uh, it's, it's very unstable as a molecule, so therefore difficult to manufacture. Um, the actual biochemical pathways by which it works uh, that'd be a question that I'd ask Dwight or, or Keith about. Um, Keith, do you want to weigh in, or where's, where's Dwight? Um, so, yeah, maybe if we can, uh, I can get you the answer. I don't have the, the details on the rest of that. Yes. Okay. Terrific. Yes. Right? Okay. Other questions? All right. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.